Hi, this is Michael Azarad, the editor-in-chief of the TalkHouse. Welcome to the latest installment of the TalkHouse Music Podcast. Today's guests are Patrick Carney, the drummer from the Black Keys, whose new album, Turn Blue, recently debuted at number one on the Billboard charts. He'll be joined by Carrie Brownstein, whom you might know from the band Slater Kinney or from the TV show Portlandia. Patrick and Carrie actually go back a long way. The Black Keys opened for Slater Kinney back in 2003, and they've been friends ever since. In their conversation, Patrick and Carrie get into a whole lot of things like, what's it like to be in a huge band right now? Or what's it like to work with Danger Mouse and the dark side of social media? And here we go. it's Carrie. Hey, what's up? Not much. How are you? I'm like, I'm tired as hell, to be honest. Where are you right now? I'm at home. Okay. In Nashville. When do you guys leave on tour? Um, we don't leave for like three weeks, but I've got, I have, we have like a couple, like, we have like a serious radio concert to play next week. We have little things. My brother's getting married. That's I've cool. got shit to do, but just the past five weeks has been like kind of it's like the most intense five weeks of promo we've ever done. Yes. Kind of. It's just super frustrating. Because, like, I do these interviews, and then I'll say something, like, that I think is, like, I don't know. Either, like, for instance, this, this whole, like, Michael Jackson thing, I think it kind of, like, I said, like, that the record, uh, you know, I thought it was kind of bullshit that his estate was releasing music as a finished new album and uh, it's obviously you know about the money and then I end up getting called like it ends up tr- translated in the press as I call Michael Jackson bullshit right and, and also you could be saying that as a genuine Michael Jackson fan who knows that he was totally particular about what he released yeah I'm a Michael Jackson fan and it's like even Quincy Jones like came out the other day and said the record was a money grab it's just insane. I just basically was just so frustrated. Like, I've not, I'm not one to, to really Google the Black Keys, but occasionally I will, especially after like a TV performance or a concert to see a review. Mm-hmm. And I've happened across like a couple articles that have just been so fucking weird. Like, Forbes magazine wrote this article. It was titled like, "Why do people in the Midwest like the Black Keys so much?" And then it went on to use, like, um, the phrase blue collar with, like, such disdain. Like, it was, like, the grossest thing I've ever read. And then compared our music to a Brooklyn brunch menu. That doesn't make sense. Also, so they they were talking about it, like, from a monetary perspective because it was Forbes. Like, was it supposed to be analysis? Like, why does this No, it was, like, it was just editorial about, like, how our music is, like, um, Pork belly. I don't fucking know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of weird with, like, the way that social media kind of flattens everything. So it's like everything yeah. is kind of mediated through, like, you know, computers or cell phones or Twitter. So it's like things that should be really important, like social justice or war. Like, we read about that on Twitter, but then we also read about what you said about Michael Jackson or Justin yeah. Bieber on Twitter. On Twitter, and then it's like, 
it has the same value when really, like, who cares what you say? You know, people shouldn't be as obsessed about what you said as No, no one should care about anything I have to say. <laughs> like, really, they shouldn't. Like, I, Emily doesn't even have to care about anything I have to say. So, like, why, why should anybody on the Internet? Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's, like, it's, I'm, you know, I was watching CNN the other night, and uh, they had, like, um, Ann Couture on. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I basically watched one of the grossest things I've ever seen on television. And it was, they were doing this segment about the 9-11 memorial um, and whether it was okay for that to exist and if, whether it was okay for them to have a gift shop and all those things. And, uh, of course, Ann Coulter was completely cool with it. Um, <laughs> with and the I, I actually don't know where I stand on it. But mm-hmm. I do know this. The anchor on CNN was like, you know, it does feel weird, $24 ticket and charging money uh, and having to generate revenue to, to, you know, maintain this memorial. And I'm sitting there watching this fucking same channel that for the past seven weeks has just done, like, nonstop Flight 370 coverage. And I just see, like, the Pfizer ads rolling in. that they're making so much money off that. The only reason why they're airing it nonstop. So basically, I'm just, like, I'm so fed up with it. Like, even, like, you you know, you get on Twitter and everybody has a fucking opinion. But there's always, there's, like, the, the dialogue goes much deeper than just, you know, the way it comes across on Twitter. And Yeah, I think so, too. Well, I think especially in terms of, like, musicians or public phys- figures, like, you know, fans want you to be larger than life and mysterious. But then at the same time, you're supposed to be really accessible and like right. down to earth and it's it's kind of a weird place to be in you know because it's like it makes that dichotomy really pronounced and it's hard to have like a persona and foster mystery and make art that's interesting but then like tweet about what you ate for breakfast yeah you know so it's like i think there's some people that just refuse to engage in social media like is dan dan's not on twitter is he dan's not on twitter no he ha- he has like a twitter account but yeah, you you have to just detox a little bit, maybe. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I think like there are there are tons of people who I think benefit or are able to like kind of maintain a sort of facade of mystery, or maybe it's an actual like natural kind of uh, eccentric personality. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm not one of those people, you know, and I like, uh, I'm. So yeah, I'm like I, I like Twitter because it is like you can just goof around. But uh, I actually at this point I don't even tweet anymore. Really, I just kind of retweet stuff and look around because there's just such venom like floating around in that space. It's just people just want to. Some people want to say really nice things, but most people just want to tell you that you're a fucking asshole. I know it's it's always strange to me that they they want to do that publicly too, or like they really want to let you personally know that you're a piece of shit. It's it, just, yeah, and I basically it it fascinates me if somebody like tweets at me like, you know, and says that like you know you're yeah you fucking I can't believe that yeah you know whatever you're you're a piece of shit I go and I look at their Twitter account I'm like this guy who's like a you know a chef in Iowa woke up today and at some point during the day decided to pick up his phone and tell the drummer from a band that he's a piece of shit like that is, it's so fucking dark really. I think it's dark. I think you're right. I mean, I think you're onto something there that there's a certain kind of like deficit that a human has to have 
to think that they should just spend energy making somebody yeah. else feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's really... It's actually amazing. I think that, like, it makes me want to troll... I, I will end up, like, kind of trolling these people a little bit. And, but I, if, if I wasn't, like... You know, my brother Michael... He has my favorite Twitter account because no one cares what really no one really cares what he has to say, but he has the best stuff to say. Is like, is like it's funny. He can make fun of shit, and like I can't even make fun of anything on my Twitter account. I can't even like I can't even be genuine on it. Yeah. At the moment, the moment, like if I was, I want to send a tweet like the other day, like thanks for everybody for buying the record. Um, can't believe we have a number one record in the U.S. But I just knew what was going to happen. It was just it would end up turning into like. Uh, me being called a sellout. Right. I just didn't want to fucking look at it. So if you feel stifled in terms of your relationship with social media or the fans, do you still, how do you approach like songwriting? You don't feel stifled when you guys are going into that process, right? No. I mean, when we, when we started with this record, I, the most logical thing that Dan and I could come, to, well, the, 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 the conclusions we had about the reception of this record were all, like we're already kind of understood before we even recorded a single note. We knew that Pitchfork was going to go in on it and like um, probably do an attack, a more of a personal attack too. And that's exactly what it did. They basically called us like Neanderthals. Um, and uh, so yeah, we knowing all that stuff before we even make the record, we just kind of we just we actually are able to just kind of we just make the music we want to make. And now we have to just, then you sit down and you, and you you deal with the blogger from Death and Taxes who says that they hung out with you in 2005 and that you're a fucking cocksucker or whatever it is. You just deal with that. It always, it's like more and more people just want to uh, take shots at, at bands, I guess. Well, and I find it, I find it like, you know, when I was watching St. Vincent on SNL, I thought the performance was, I thought it was the best SNL performance I've seen in like years. I don't know how, I don't know the last one that was that good. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at Twitter, and it's just people like, what is this weird fucking shit? This, oh, man, this chick's crazy. <laughs> like, what the fuck is going on? Right. Well, I think, I mean, part of that is just, you know, somebody doing something different, like trying to, you know, I mean, in, in a mainstream context, she's coming across as slightly avant-garde. Whereas, totally. You know, and people are so confused when I think, like, a female especially isn't just like performing in this way that they're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of your stuff, do you feel like, okay, so when you're younger and you're, there's certain, you know, like outlets, like things that you would sort of gauge as like, this is important to me, like this, you know, this reviewer, this context, and then like Pitchfork, like which is probably something you read or, you know, gave you guys... I never really paid attention to it until we started the band. And, okay. But as a kid, like, the only thing I paid attention to was Magnet Magazine. Oh, yeah. I remember Ma- Magnet are still around. Yeah, I think it's still around. I mean, Magnet and then um, Flipside. Yeah. Uh, Maximum Rock and Roll a little bit, but not even really. And the thing is, I've never bought a record except for the only record I've ever bought based on an article or a review is the first Love This Laughter record when I was, like, 14. Right. Yeah, um, I think... It, it's just because they talk about how he made his record in his parents' basement on a four-track, and I had a four-track and was making music in my parents' basement. I thought it was really cool. He was, like, to me, a, a you know, really old guy at the 
21-year-old doing it. I thought it was really cool. Right. Yeah. Love is Laughter. That is that Sam Jane. That was such a strange, like, insular project. Um, yeah. But I wanted to, like, talking about, like, those publications that you read, you know, it's like now that there's sort of a different form of validation for your band, um, you know, it's like you're sort of transcending, like, anyone, if someone writes a bad review, that doesn't matter for you guys anymore. So, like, do you still care about what those people, like, is there a younger part of yourself that still holds that as more validating or, like, the fact that you guys have a number one record? Do you know what I mean? Like, does it... To me, to me, the number one record, uh, it just, it actually, like, I, I sat around the last two days, almost 12 hours a day writing thank you texts to people and emails. I just couldn't, I just can't believe it. Mm -hmm. I never, I just, I just felt, remember like what it felt like, like, you know, going back when we were opening for you guys um, on that tour, like how amazing that was and how like, it, I I never thought we'd ever get to do something like that. And then to go and have, somehow have a fucking number one record, it just doesn't make sense. I'm having trouble processing it. Yeah, well, I but, should say, I should say I, I wanted to start this conversation with saying congratulations. Like, I'm really proud of you guys. I think it's super exciting. And what it, I'm sure this stands as one of those moments. But like, you know, when you're experiencing something as an adult, as you start to, you know, have more of these, like, kind of surreal moments. Like, what have the moments been where you think, oh my gosh, my younger self would freak out right now? I mean, um, there's been a, a few. I mean that. Op opening for you guys the first was the first thing. Opening for Beck, all these things. But lately, the biggest thing was the first time we played SNL. Uh, that that was like a magical experience. Was that on Bro on Brothers? Was that what? Yeah, up? it was like it was January. Um, it was January the first week of January, two thousand eleven. Uh -huh. And I just remember like I was like. Man, it, like 19 years ago, I saw Nirvana play the same week, and it changed my fucking life on SNL. Yeah, like the January '92, and the, to me, like those things, it's weird to be to experience that stuff. But it's always bittersweet. It is like, um, you know, I mean, like when we when we've won Grammys and now the, this number one record, all the main thing my mind revolves around. Is just all of the fucking amazing bands that have, that I love that that should have had the number one record and should have won fucking boatloads of Grammys or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. I start feeling I start feeling kind of uh, spoiled, you know. Right. I mean, it's right. At one level, you feel fortunate, and then you you see how part of it can be arbitrary that you think like this is. This is like a strange game that you guys have kind of mastered, and it's yeah, totally. I, I, I don't, I don't equate the number one record to ever being the best record. I don't think there's ever been a number one record that's been the best record of that week. There's no correlation there. It's just a number, but it is rare. For that's something I never thought we would get. You know what I mean? And I, I know there's way more people out there who are more deserving of it. You know. Right, but that's a very. I mean, that's sweet, but, and humble but also you guys made a great record and yeah but it's all, it also is true i mean there's just so many good records like who's to say our record's better than the little dragon record that came out you know what i mean i i don't know yeah i really don't and i uh 
so yeah, you know, it's just like that's. But back to like looking at these reviews and stuff. Yeah, I only I only care when somebody's just like portraying Dan and I as like being like idiots from the Midwest who have no education and uh, aren't capable of actually having deep thoughts about music, mm-hmm. which is kind of why Pitchfork bothers me so much because it it tend there tends to be that kind of air to the reviews uh, sometimes about our music and it's just it's just so misinformed, you know. All right. Well, I think in in general, I mean, any review that's like characterizing you guys as sort of these just this like blunt force from the Midwest that doesn't have like the intelligence or acuity to like have charted out a whole career for yourselves is very classist, you know, as if, you know, that like somehow you're incapable of making an artistic statement Um, when really it's strange to me that you aren't being celebrated for the sheer fact that you're not only still around, it seems like bands, like, it's hard for people to know what to do with the narrative of, of a band that stays around a long time. Right. Um, but it's not that you're just around, like, you're doing better than you've ever been, which I think is also a very confusing narrative for a critic. They're like, huh. You know what I mean? It's like, so sometimes I think the reaction is like, well, we're just not going to like this record. <laughs> it's like, yeah. there's nothing you guys can do. And and. and Cool. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. It's just, and I'm I'm completely comfortable. I I actually I love criticism. I love especially like constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. If it was about the music, if it was like if it made sense, if it wasn't just like the Pitchfork review is something to me that really it just really kind of bothered me. And I I didn't even read the whole thing. I read the first two paragraphs and I read the last line. But the first two paragraphs are a, this writer's brief summarization of um, the history of music the last four years. And basically, the conclusion he came to is that people stopped buying records, and we were like these cockroaches from Akron that stuck around long enough to like um, not sell any records but still be headlining festivals or something, which I just thought was insane because the last couple records, actually, they did sell a lot of copies. I and I just don't understand what he's trying to say. And it just kind of hurt. It just like basically took the work that Dan and I have done and just kind of belittled it into this meaningless bullshit, which I think, like, I'm actually comfortable with that to a certain degree, uh, but at the same time, it's just it's just uh, so arrogant that it bothers me, you know? But, like, the, a week ago, we played a festival, and, like, we've been doing all these, we've just been doing interviews and stuff. We've probably spent more time doing press in this record at this point than, like, actually making the fucking album. So last Friday, we got to actually play a concert uh, for the first time since January. Yeah, I and mean... I, it, it's such an amazing experience. Like, And I, I've, you know, you start kind of forgetting it when it, how, like, you know, when you're just playing, like, Letterman and you're playing these things, they're just kind of, like, more uncomfortable, awkward, promotional things. And then you get in front of the crowd and you realize that it's all kind of real. You know, like, there, there are people out there that actually enjoy music and it's not just about, like, um, posting a fucking hateful blog or appearing on TV or whatever it is. It's about, like, making something that people enjoy, you know? And I think that, like, every single week, you know, every re- every record that gets reviewed in Rolling Stone, there are, there are people that love these bands and that, that they actually are bringing, like, happiness to people, these musicians, you know? And that's something that's completely forgotten, um, you know, by a lot, a lot of 
a lot, a lot of times when you're reading reviews and reviewers are they, they don't realize that this is just it's like it's in a form of entertainment, you know. Right. It's not like no one's really changing the world, like by making music. I think that they're changing people, you know, like you're opening people's eyes to new stuff, you know, like when somebody sees like uh, back to St. Vincent, somebody sees uh, Annie playing guitar for the first time. It's mind blowing, you know. It's mm-hmm. such a cool fucking sound. Somebody sees Kurt Cobain on SNL the first time. It, it it like altered it altered my life, you know. But it's not like it's just it's just because I enjoyed that form of entertainment. The, the most striking thing to me about about your band is that first of all just the longevity like why do you guys why do you guys stick around you know like what how do you and Dan like sort of nurture that and like why why do you want to keep going well wait, we've been around we've been together as long as Cedar Kitty was together at this right you guys 2000 did you get your first record in 95 yeah 10 years and their last show was in, I thought your last show was in 2007, wasn't it? Or 2006, no? I, yeah, 2006. Yeah, so it's about the same exact amount of time. Yeah, but you guys are going to keep going though, right? Yeah, we're going to keep going. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, it's like, I'm. you know, I, I just turned 34, Dan just turned 35. and It's, sometimes it's hard to like rationalize the lifestyle and like, the kind of selfish nature of being a musician as an adult. And I'm I'm actually having sort of struggles with that right now. Because like I wanna have a family, I wanna do things like that. But I feel I feel like I can't really do that and then also go on tour for like seven months. It just it's not something that I really want to be doing. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely tricky. I feel like people like there's such a grass is greener syndrome. Like I think people look at like musicians and pop stars or rock stars and they just think like oh that must be the most glamorous job but then there's something i feel like i always felt like when i was playing more music like oh, there's something that seems so wonderful about like the day to day that i miss out on all the time yeah but i yeah i think it's hard just cuz it's not a very like valued like in the big picture like people don't necessarily value like the perennial adolescence that you kind of have to embrace in order to do it. Like if you're trying you to, absolutely f- have to, if yeah. you're trying to fight that all the time on tour, I mean, you'll kill yourself trying to make things normal. Like tour is one of the most surreal, like upside down experiences. I think. Dan handles tour pretty much better than anybody else I've ever seen do it. You know, we kind of have, we have the luxury, like if you, if you, if we, if we wanted, if I wanted to, I could probably be in bed every night at one in the morning. I could be up at like a normal time. And Dan does do that, you know. He goes to bed early, wakes up, but he's also a father, so I think he's he's used to these routines. But I'm 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 in the same routine that I was when I was eighteen, so. <laughs> and it makes me just kind of I start kind of feeling like a loser sometimes, you know. 
No, but it's like I really think that it's like survival skills, you know, and everybody kind of figures out these rituals that make tour tolerable. And I think like for some people, like for me and Corin, we totally, you remember, like you guys mostly hung out with Janet (laughs) (laughs) because like after the shows, she, she's just as more gregarious and she's a late night person. Like I am the opposite of a late night person. Like I do my best thinking at like 7am. So it's like, I, I was always at odds, but I do think it's like, there's no right way of approaching it. It's just whatever can emulate normalcy on tour. Yeah. You know. Totally. When Yeah, but I mean yeah, Dan are gonna we're gonna keep going. I want I mean I think that like there was a there's a moment that happened like started like about late two thousand ten where I started kind of perceiving this like invisible pressure that really wasn't there. It was like all in my head really, but and it was a pressure I could feel like the band was kind of like on the rise and I could feel just just from being a fan of music, I could tell that that also, along with that, comes the inevitable backlash. Mm-hmm. Which, um, you know, the past couple of weeks, in certain arenas, I started feeling it more, more than ever. But you know, but once you know, we made this record and we've we've, we've gotten to this point where like we're number one. So there's the only place to go is down, and that's what's going to happen next and it's going to be okay, and it's going to be fucking cool. And it's going to actually, this pressure is gone now. You know what I mean? Did, did you feel that, pressure Did you feel pressure after you started to have radio impact in terms of songwriting, like, to, you know, to emulate the last, you know, here's a single, we need another single. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, was that internal pressure, label pressure, or just no pressure? It was no pressure. If anything, it was, like, we've never had an A&R guy, mm-hmm. you know? That's what that's one thing I really love about our situation is we are, we're on uh, none such mm-hmm. like they're like the, it's part of Warner Brothers so it's part of a major but there's only like twelve people that work at none such they're like the the sweetest people and they let us do whatever we want you know like Brothers El Camino Turn Blue Attack and Lee's Magic Potion we just mailed them the CD and like said this is you know. This is the record. Um, Do you feel that was the extent of it? And then when we turned brothers in, like, uh, you know, we did we did one song with Danger Mouse, and we were like, this we think this is a single, maybe. But we, you know, we're like, but you guys pick. You know, you have a radio team. We don't know anything about radio, and we never even had a song that got played on radio, so it wasn't like we ever thought it was actually going to work. And they. It took the song to a couple stations, and the stations all said, "This is not something that that we would really play." And the record came out. We went on tour, and we didn't hear anything until August. The record came out in May, and in August we heard like, "Oh, the record actually got like playlisted at a few stations, and it's starting to get played." And then a couple of weeks later, we heard the record was like in the top five, and then we heard it went number one on alternative radio, and it just kind of blew our minds and then that's when everything started changing that's when I started feeling the pressure like what the fuck like um what do we do next you know and then we ended up playing SNL going to the Grammys and winning a Grammy and we had this tour we had a tour scheduled to go to Australia and we just cancelled all of our tours and went back in the studio with Danger Mouse and just kind of shut everything out and just made a record 
What was after Brothers? Was it El Camino or Attack and Release? El Camino. Yeah. yeah. So, and how did you guys, Brian, who's Danger Mouse, like, yeah. how did you guys start incorporating him more and more? Like, did it seem, was it a very fluid process? And was it something that you realized, um, it, like, you wanted in terms of, like, songwriting or just an outside perspective? Well, we first worked with him on Attack and Release. He, he came to Ohio. We went to the studio, this cool old studio that where Perry Ubu recorded, like, every record and it was about an hour and a half from Akron, so we just stayed in this Holiday Inn, the three of us, and we made a record, and he was producing it. We wrote, like, maybe one song together with him. And when we were done recording, we were just like, there's nothing to do. We literally, like, we either go drink beers, or we would go uh, fuck around in a Walmart, mm-hmm. the three of us. And we just became, like, really close friends. And so then that record came out, and Dan put out a solo record, and two years later we went and made Brothers. And after we made Brothers, we went back in the studio for, to do one song with Brian. And um, I've ever since then, I've always wanted to keep working with him. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, and late, like El Camino, he co-wrote with us, and this record, he co-wrote with us. And I just, honestly, it's just because it's more fun. I just think it's the dynamic between the three of us that... Uh, it's just good. It's just good energy. It's like re- really light in the studio. We're just kind of goofing around the whole time. Yeah, I do think like no matter where you start, either as a two piece or three piece, there is this. I mean, well, first of all, you have to protect the chemistry, but yeah. there's also such a relief I think that comes from like finding somebody that everyone equally trusts, because yeah. there's, you know, like there's this tension that's always embedded in any dynamic, and so it's like when you add an another person like somehow that's just slightly alleviated and sometimes that can just feel so freeing i think um yeah yeah i mean there there are people who have come into our world whether it's as engineers or or whatever where it's been like toxic mm-hmm. absolutely bad um yeah and i think that speaks to how chemical it really is like it really is just it's like you it's ineffable you can't quite put your finger on what one person's doing or not. I mean, sometimes with people that are toxic, it's very clear what they're doing. They're divisive or whatever, but sometimes yeah. it's really almost kind of like an energy thing. Like if you're writing in a room and somebody isn't even contributing in a way that is really palpable, but then there somehow brings something out in you. Like, yeah. And I do think, especially if you've been a band for a while, like you don't want to completely dismantle what you had. And I think you guys have done a good job with that. record I think allows you it like has this a little bit more of a laid back feel which I think is like yeah, right and, in your zone you know and it's like it's groovy I, and I really wanted that mm-hmm. like and actually Dan and I went into the studio without Brian in February of last year and we were doing mostly upbeat kind of faster stuff and I was really resistant to it but I also I also was just 
went with the flow because Dan was going through a breakup and I thought it was more like uh, cathartic for him to be in there making music and I just wanted to like take part and have fun and 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 not be like uh, resistant to whatever it is he was in the mood to do. Yeah, I think it's there's a certain point in the process where it is an impedance to like shut it down too early, you know, like yeah. I think sometimes later you're just like, no, this is, I don't want to do this song or this isn't working. But I think like if you start out that way, I do think it feels stifling. Um, yeah. That's one of the most important things I've ever learned. Uh, Brian taught me this when we were making, I think it's when we were making attack and release and at parts during El Camino, like we'd start working on something and I, I wouldn't like it. And I would, I would, you know, voice my opinion. Um, and I thought I was being productive by like saving time or something. And Brian took me outside. I was like, look, you can't, you can't shoot down opinions or shoot down ideas until we all try to execute it. Cause like, you know, you're going to have an idea. And if, imagine if you just like, didn't want to, Dan didn't want to try it. And you thought it was a great idea. Like just relax. There's no rush. And like, you, you've got to give everything uh, a chance to, to work. Yeah, I feel like I've learned that more from writing for a TV show than I did in music, and I've since taken that and applied it to music because it's like you don't know what the song's going to be sometimes until you've mixed it, you know? Like, I mean, so some songs you have to give up on earlier, but I do think there is something about allowing it to just, like, sit for a few days or, like, you hear somebody will actually solve the problem. Like, I think... um also, I think we each bring our own sort of fears of like something sounding too much, like some genre we don't like or something. You know what I mean? Exactly. You're like, oh my God, this song sounds like this. And then you just shut it down. When when we recorded the song Tighten Up with Brian, which was the song we did with him off of Brothers, the first kind of song that ended up working at radio, we recorded it um, in early December 2009. And Dan hated it. He really hated it. Why did he hate it? It made him feel uncomfortable, uh-huh. and he couldn't really say why. But I was I was okay with it. I didn't pressure him. I was just like, okay, we'll take it. We'll take it off the record. So I was living in New York, New York at the time, and I flew to to Akron in January, and we recorded like two more songs in the studio. And we were trying to figure out. We were sitting around trying to figure out what the what was going to go on the record. Um, and I sequenced it out, and I had a couple of buddies over to my apartment, like in March. And I played them tighten up, and they're basically, you guys are insane if you don't put this on the record. It's like, it's a no-brainer. And I was like, yeah, I kind of feel the same way, but I don't. I, you know what? I haven't listened to this song in three months. So I called Dan. And I was like, you know what? Leon says we should put this song on the record. I agree with him. Dan's like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Put it on the record. <laughs> that was it. It's yeah. It's funny how I think from the outside people think that. There's so many contrivances with music, but really, like, often decisions are arbitrary. You know, something mm-hmm. will end up on a record based on a feeling that someone has or something will get cut from a record based on the same thing. Like, it is often, like, happenstance. The same thing just happened with the making of this record. Like, I sequenced the record and brought it to Dan, and uh, he wanted to add a, the, the song Gotta Get Away. Which I didn't have on the on the. That's the, that's the last song on the record. That's the, yeah, yeah. 
that song's always been it's like one of the we wrote it like really quickly in February just the two of us and I've, I've kind of like it just felt so it's just so straightforward that I thought it like I didn't really think anything of it you know I felt more like this is a kind of fun song but I just whatever I I just didn't put it on the on the record, so Dan really wanted it on the record. So that was like the a last minute inclusion as well. And I I I have to say every time I go in the studio, Dan, I get excited about making music. It's the most fun. It's the reason why we started the band because we just wanted to make a record. Um, but just think we have like a good, healthy understanding of like trying to push each other into places that might be slightly uncomfortable, and but then and it's like. We've learned, like, kind of, like, you know, we'll finish it, and if a few months later it feels weird, we just we'll forget about it. Do you feel fortunate to be in a position now where you can take bands on tour or help other bands, like, in the way that you guys were sort of... I mean, because you were a band long enough before you got big that, I mean, you guys did it all. You toured in vans. You, I mean, you've done... So do you feel good about where you guys are now in terms of that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I really wanted to take, th- I wanted to do a three-band bill mm-hmm. on this tour coming up, but uh, you go into these arenas and there's like ridiculous rules about like how long the actual show can go because yeah, there's like ushers and insurance and all this crazy shit. But yeah, you know, I mean, like the biggest break we ever got was when you guys asked us on tour and then when Beck asked us on tour through meet- meeting them with you guys. Those back to back were like the only other time we ever opened for anybody on the tour was uh, we opened for Pearl Jam a couple times and we opened for Radiohead a couple times. Oh yeah, because didn't we introduce you to Beck at an SNL after party? Yeah, <laughs> you did at yeah. SNL after party in February of two thousand three. Yeah, because, and that's such a weird night because that's the night I met Fred. So it's like for both of us. <laughs> That's oh, you met Fred that night. I didn't know that. So that's like the night that changed both of our lives. <laughs> that's the night Tracy Morgan smacked my ass, too. What? I don't remember that. He was talking to Lauren Michael at this party. Obviously, we didn't know anybody but you guys. And I inter- I was like, my brother Mike was there. And we were just picking up half-empty drinks because we couldn't afford the drinks there. And we are just drinking, like, other people's beers. And I went up to... Tracy Morgan was talking to Lauren Michael, and I was like, I interrupted him, and I was like, you need to give Tracy Morgan his own show. It's so funny. And Tracy Morgan was like, that's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear. He's like, let me smack your ass. And I, he just smacked everybody's ass that was standing around. I don't know. Talking about taking bands out on tour, like, it's, it's always really important to us to take out bands, like, uh, that we like. Um, it's kind of, you know, I wish we could take out even more. But you guys play, like, Madison Square Garden and stadiums, like, how have you sort of adapted to that? It, I really had trouble with it. It was weird because the first time we played Madison Square Garden was in early 2010. We opened for Pearl Jam there. Yeah, and we, I, we I did was, too. <laughs> I wasn't nervous. Right, I wasn't nervous. It just was like, I was okay with it. But then when we went back and headlined it the first time, two years later, I was terrified.
is there ever part of you that thinks like you're glad to be making music that at least people like care enough about to either have an opinion either way you know what i mean yeah i mean uh brian called me actually we were on the phone I was, I, my allergies have been really bad the past couple of weeks so like the last couple of nights i was in new york doing press i just went to my hotel room early and i called brian um like the night the pitchfork review came up and we were on the phone when it came out he's like oh yeah man that's predictable like this is good. Like the best records are the ones that some people hate, some people love. I think so too. Yeah. I really think, like, the worst thing for any art is just that it's so benign that it doesn't make any impact at all. You know, I think it's nice to have a conversation where you have some people really reacting negatively because I think that's a more interesting statement. And I feel like records now that everyone just assumes were so loved back then, you know, like weren't actually loved. Like certain David Bowie records or right. even like, you know, Nirvana, like right. the third Nirvana record, you know, like, yeah, it's just like, I think like the Led Zeppelin record for poorly reviewed, like it's, it's like time sort of like, it's the ultimate sort of judge of things. But I think in the moment, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's not bad to have, but I just wish people were a little nicer, at least on, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Twitter's the only thing that kind of, it's what actually it is. It's just like, I actually get such a kick out of it sometimes. If I say something that like, and it gets misconstrued, that's when I get really stressed out because I can't, you can't explain yourself on, you know. But it goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning. I still don't know why anybody would put any value on anything I have to say. Like, <laughs> it really, that alone, I find disturbing. Like, um, I mean, and it really came down to that Justin Bieber thing i mean we were at the grammys like two years ago i got cornered outside the chateau mormont which we should have known better that we shouldn't have been staying there but like we'd been staying in shitty hotels in hollywood for our entire career so we just had started being able to kind of afford to stay in the nice places so we kind of we're getting a kick out of staying there and what i didn't really realize how much of like a um paparazzi thing is and I also didn't realize that anybody would even recognize me but it's only because it was the night of the Grammys right and you guys you know? had won so, yeah so the only because of that and because of where we were it all kind of lined up so that when I snuck out of the we avoided there's a big red carpet we for this, this Warner Brothers party that we didn't even go to we just snuck out we were going to go to some other bar somewhere and a guy ran up to me in a liquor locker parking lot, that liquor store next door, with a camera. It was like, "What? how do you feel about Justin Bieber not winning a Grammy? And I swear to God, I was trying to say something nice. I was like, he should just be really happy. He's a successful career in music and, like, you know. And I, I was like, you know, I had, like, one of the most stressful days of my life that day. Because we had to get up at 8 in the morning, and we had to be there all day for rehearsal. And then we had to perform live in front of millions of people on TV at I got. I was so stressed about it. I went to a hypnotist two nights earlier to like deal with the how nervous I was. What to hypnotize you into not being nervous? Yeah, <laughs> it's, I've gone to him three times. It actually worked. Okay, but that's how scared I was. I had my yeah. doctor prescribe me this pill called propanolol, which is a beta blocker that like you can take it, and I guess like lots of uh, um, symphonic uh, string players take it. It blocks the oh, adrenaline yeah, the beta receptors. Blockers, yeah. Yeah. So 
So I had one mm-hmm. in my pocket, like as ammo in case I got nervous. It turned out Dan like flipped out before we went on. <laughs> That's classic. And so I gave him my beta blocker. So I was just winging it with nothing. I never even taken one of those two. But I was just so scared. So, and then and then we end up winning awards. It's like exciting and scary and insane. And I go back to the hotel and I say this thing that comes out all wrong. And then I, I wake up the next day and Justin Bieber tweeted that he wants to smack me in the face. And I, it was just basically like, fuck this shit. This is so fucking stupid. Yeah, I mean, I, it... I had to write. I wrote like an apology on Twitter, and then within hours, it was just incessant like fuck you you fucking asshole you know everything like little kids were calling me every name in the book and just like this is just so dark and sick and like it's all caused by tmz and it's like yeah and it's it's just like you know people want like music to be like exciting and volatile but then expect like a certain amount of polish that is really hard to have when you're just in a moment you know and you're nervous and excited and it's it's hard to just you're not a politician you know no like you don't have a team of people like whispering in your ear like oh they're asking about justin bieber here's your pat response you know it's like and under normal circumstances like two human beings would just say like hey sorry that i missed you know that came out wrong but that's just not how it is well the the reason why i get so nervous about live television is because of the instant reaction you know like everybody has an opinion and now they can all voice it and every voice is as loud as the next and basically the hypnotist the main thing he did is like just tell me like he's like you know rock and roll is supposed to be sloppy it's supposed to be whatever it is that it is like there's no right way to to play your song you made the song if you play it wrong then that's the way it's supposed to be played that night and I kind of just had to like really take that to heart and it really helped me yeah, I, I think that's really true. You know, I think, like, like the beauty is a little bit in the chaos of it. And I think as a person, it's really hard to, like, exist with that. But, like, from from an artistic perspective, it's, like, wonderful to try to, like, tame the chaos or try to, like, revel in it a little bit. Yeah. So. You know, the other night we were playing this concert at this festival um, in Alabama. And we came off stage... And the the promoter was like, you guys have to play like 20 more minutes. And we're like, seriously? Like, I thought we just played for 90 minutes. He's like, no, you guys just like blew through that set. So we were like, okay, cool. Not a problem. Uh, so we played three more songs. And our tour manager was like, no, you guys still have like seven minutes. You got to keep going. Were you just playing every song so fast? We weren't even. I, I just don't know. We actually, all the tempos were like pretty good. And I, I think we just like hadn't played a festival in a long time. We didn't remember that we needed to play like 22 songs we only played like in a major in the main set like 18 right so we come to the point where like we're seven minutes left and there's only like one other song that like dan and i know right now and it's like a song we haven't even played in like six months so we played it and like we both like during the whole time playing it like we each kept forgetting different parts of it but it ended up being i think the best version of that song that we've ever played because it was like we were moving we played it as a two-piece and we were moving like together like the way we learned to play music and it was kind of like it was one of the most fun moments i've had on stage in years because it was like we were moving like gel 
Like, it was like slow motion. And as I fucked up, Dan would follow me. And as he fucked up, I, I would follow him. And we basically just covered each other's tracks. And it was like, it was kind of amazing. That's and, great. We should yeah. we should end there because that's a okay. good that's a good story. Okay. And it's it's what makes you guys great. Um, well, thanks for talking to me for the talk house. Also, it's just nice to talk to you, and I am really happy for you guys. And congratulations on everything. Well, congratulations to you and everything as well. Thanks, and I'll see you. I'm gonna come see you guys out on the road with this tour. So. Awesome. Cool. Take care. Hi, this is Michael Azarad, Editor-in-Chief of The Talk House. Thanks for listening to The Talk House Podcast. If you'd like to visit The Talk House and check out more podcasts and great writing by musicians about new albums, by all means visit music.thetalkhouse.com. Thanks. Bye. I'll just do my ID. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein from Portlandia and Slater Kinney, and you're listening to the Talk House podcast. And I'll do one. Hi, this is Patrick Carney from the Black Keys, and you're listening to the Talk House podcast. Oh, we're such pros. Pros. <laughs>